Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary VGW. void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details hello welcome to the snooker scene podcast we're here for another week dependent and michael mcmullen uh, first thing to say is that congratulations on your uh, call on the U.S. election. Um, there's actually now, right. you tip you tip Donald Trump. There's actually now only you and him that actually thinks he's won. <laughs> but, but well done. Well, hang on. I, I did also say that he'd you know try every trick in the book and some that aren't in the book to try and you know weasel his way out of it. So at least well, I was right on that front. Good use of the word weasel. I've, I've actually found. Uh, well, it's not. It's not really a snooker uh, connection, but um, let's just say it is. Okay. So Joe Biden. When, yeah. he's when he's inaugurated, assuming that he is in January, he will be 78, right? That mm. is the same age as Fred Davis when he played a 16-year-old Ronnie O'Sullivan in the qualifiers for the 1992 Grand Prix. Fred Davis was 78, Ronnie was 16. It was Ronnie's first season. It was Fred's last. And he actually won a frame. So it was 5-1 to Ronnie, 62 years between them. So that means that Ronnie O'Sullivan, the current world champion, has played someone professionally who competed in the World Championship pre-war. His first World Championship, 1937, Fred Davis. Right. You might say it was Biden's time to play, to play Ronnie. But, uh, anyway. A, go on, anyway. Yeah. Here's a question I'm going to throw yeah. at you. There's no, yeah. re- there's no reason at all why you should know the answer, but let's see if you do. Okay. In a professional ranking event, who was the last player Fred Davis ever beat? Oh. <laughs> it's one of these, when you say it to me, I'll remember it. Um, just well, give me a little, little clue. Little well, clue. I'll tell you the tournament. I mean, you know, right. he, he, was yeah. 70, he was 77 at the time. It was the 1991 Mercantile Classic, obviously early rounds. Yeah. Any um, sort of clue at all? Well, <laughs> um, he's a snooker player. Not a well-known one um, at all, really. I think he was from the Isle of Man. That's quite a big clue. Oh, Tony Wilson. Wilson, yeah. yeah I, I wouldn't have got that, actually. Also, also. Also a well-known uh, music presenter, I believe, in yes, Manchester. Indeed, indeed. Well, I mean, the thing about Fred Davis, I mean, people talk about him getting to the World semi-finals at 64 and all the various other remarkable things he did. As late as 1988, he was one match away from getting back to the Crucible. And, yeah. I mean, he was 74 at the time, and he would have played Jimmy in the first round. Would have been absolutely fantastic. 
Well, the thing is, I mean, whenever you see a uh, discussion about the greatest of all time and top tens, he's very rarely in it. But mm-hmm. actually, but actually, you know, his longevity was extraordinary. Obviously, for a lot of those years, he wasn't really doing anything. But to still be going, I mean, I saw him play Steve Davis at the World Masters. In yeah. Birmingham. You know, uh, in 1991, uh, to still be going to have that longevity. Of course, Ronnie O'Sullivan, I mean, all right, he's 44 now. You know, there's a long way to go. But he's the one player you could actually see still producing it. Who knows until he's how old? Um, That's, of course, the impressive thing about him. It's actually, as we record this today, it's 27 years to the day since Ronnie won the qualifier for the Masters when he was 17. Oh, yeah. Got to Wembley in 94. So 27 years ago, he won that. He's now world champion again. You know, so that that points to longevity. Whether he'll be a pro as long as Fred, we'll find out. Anyway, we we should start the podcast rather than just chat, <laughs> rather than just yakking about this. Mm. Uh, so this this week we'll be discussing, of course, Mark Allen's capture of the champion of champions. Uh, I'll be talking about the one thing I promised never to mention again: the triple crown. Yes, that's coming round again. Um, and we will be, uh, I guess, peeling back the curtain on snooker's representation in light entertainment. And in some cases, very light entertainment, it's got to be said. Um, before we start, though, I just wanted to mention, sadly, a few people have passed away recently. Um, Vic Bartlam, he was a very popular referee from the West Midlands. He died recently. His wife actually passed away the previous week. So, of course, we send our condolences to the family. Uh, Roy Andrewartha also yeah. passed, passed away at the age of 82. He played the Crucible in 1984. And then he actually retired the following season. And I just wonder, like, the game was starting to obviously expand at that point. Maybe endless weeks on the road just wasn't for him. You know, it's not for everyone. So we think about when the sort of game started to do really well as being a great period. But for some people, maybe not. Anyway, he passed away. And also Dave Deeks, a very well-regarded, yes. very well-regarded coach in the Stoke area. And he worked with several professionals. I've actually had an email about Dave Deeks from Jay Brannan. He said... I went to university in Stoke between 2006 and 2010, enabling me to become a member of the Reardon Club. Dave was the heart and soul of the club, facilitating a pathway for many junior players in the area. As no university mates wanted to play, my playing time was almost always solo. He was the one person who would constantly talk to me, offering fascinating stories of his time in the game, providing insight into players he'd worked with and giving little tips. I didn't return for several years as the club was no longer my local base, but on my occasional visits in the last few years, it was a pleasure to see Dave still working and being the warm, helpful, and amusing character that has left a significant legacy behind his snooker. He was very much a mountain thorn figure for the Staffordshire area. And, of course, snooker, and all sports, actually, but snooker has long been blessed with the likes of Dave Deeks, Malcolm Thorne, as was mentioned, other people who may not be big names, but have been very significant in the grassroots, certainly for players starting out. Derek Curnow in Bristol was an early influence on Judd Trump. Uh, Stan Chambers has done a lot in the northeast of England, and many, many others... You know, good snooker people, motivated not by glory, but just by a love of the game and a wish to to help people. Yeah, uh, a couple of things to say. I didn't actually know till you mentioned it there that Vic Bartlam had died. He uh, he refereed the first ever, and indeed until 2009, the only ranking final between two non-British players. He was the ref of the 85 wow. British Open final. I didn't know he'd died. I obviously knew about the other two. And I knew Dave yeah, reasonably well because obviously he travelled with Jamie Cope when uh, Jamie was a leading player. And I remember just sitting with him at times, just have a cup of tea and just chat about snooker. You sort of sensed he wasn't really interested in talking about anything else in the world because the game was just so much to him. And he was great to talk to. And I was very sad when I heard that he had passed away. 
Okay, well, let's move on then. Obviously, the big event last week, the Chamber of Champions. I thought it was a great event. Obviously, you know, no crowd, we know that, but they, they put on a good show, uh, Matchroom and ITV4. Um, and by the way, I should say, <laughs> before we carry on, obviously, I wasn't working on it because I had the coronavirus. Mm. Uh, thank you to everyone who, who messaged me, wishing me well. Thank you very much. I feel a lot better. All the symptoms have gone. So hopefully I'll be I'll be working next week at the Northern Ireland Open. Anyway, I watched it all. And uh, Mark Allen, as we know, he beat the top three in the world. Successive rounds, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Judd Trump, Neil Robertson. A worthy winner. I mean, we'll come on in a minute, I think, to talking about the fact that he wasn't a champion. But you can't, mm. argue, with, you can't argue with how he played. I was trying to think of that. I mean, how often do you see someone beat the top three players in the world in the last three rounds? I literally can't think of any. I'm sure someone will write in and tell us. I'm equally sure it must have happened at some point over the years. The hardest match he had, or certainly the closest anyway, was the first match yeah. against uh, Scott Donaldson. It was by, by far and away his lowest ranked opponent. But it says a lot for me, actually. And, we, you know, as you said, we will discuss it. The fact that he wasn't actually the current holder of a title. That actually said a lot to me about where the game's at at the moment. Because it seems that the top players all take their turn. And it comes round from time to time. It's almost like when you're picking the winner of a tournament now you'd be better off picking someone who hasn't won a tournament for a while because you've got six, seven, eight really, really, really good players who never seem to go that long without winning the tournament. So I think that was really underlined by the fact that you've got all these guys who had won tournaments over the last year, but the guy who ended up winning it was the one who was in there as a top player without actually having won anything. But he's been pretty consistent for some time now, and he didn't really have that consistency earlier on in his career. had that brilliant year in 2018. It was the first time really that tournament after tournament, he was doing well on a regular basis. And he's had that again recently. Of course, he had the huge disappointment going out in the first round of the World Championship. Even there, he was dogged by his old inconsistencies because he played brilliantly for so much of that match and still somehow ended up not winning it. But once he got past O'Sullivan, I have to say, when I saw that lineup for the last four, I really fancied him to win it. And boy, did he play well in the uh, last couple of rounds to, to, to finish it off. There's also been a pattern of players this year, haven't there, who sort of, should in theory shouldn't be in tournaments doing really well in them yeah. Ali, Ali Carter got to the Masters final he's only in it yeah. because Ronnie, Ronnie O'Sullivan didn't play Stephen Maguire won the tour championship initially he wasn't in it it was supposed to be Ding but the tournament got moved Ding didn't play he went and won it and now Mark Allen but, you know people have, of course mentioned understandably that he wasn't a champion but I suppose the question is look it's a 16 man field you can't have buys because it's a one table setup. so you've got to fill the field somehow and if there aren't enough champions how do you do it? If you don't do off the rankings, how do you do it? Okay, another solution to look for other champions outside of the professional game. You could maybe invite the world amateur champion. I think that would be quite interesting because it's, yeah. it's usually a young player just starting out. Uh, quite exciting. Of course, there's actually two world amateur championships now. Uh, but World Snooker Tour are affiliated with the World Snooker Federation. Ashley Hugill won the World Open. World Snooker Open, I guess that would be the, the, the version of that event. Um where else can you look? There was the Challenge Tour. Alan Taylor won the Playoff event. Those tournaments, though, they're you know they're all played in clubs. Are they really of the stature to an entry into the Champion of Champions? You can invite runners up from big tournaments. They of course have the World Championship runner up as one of the players. That was of course instituted in 2016 to try and shoehorn Ding in because he hadn't at that point already qualified. As I mentioned, Ali Carter runner up in the Masters, but he was runner up. He didn't win it. <laughs> being runner up isn't the same as being champion. The fact is. You know, Matchroom, the organisers, ITV, the broadcasters, they weren't big names because they attract audiences. So mm-hmm. going, going off the rankings will guarantee that. I don't think anyone could argue Alan didn't deserve to win the title, regardless of how I got into it. Yeah, you could broaden that scope. The other thing I was thinking, maybe even more likely, the world's under 21. Players win the world. 
in on the impact where champion is likely to be a young prospect who people haven't heard of. When you think back to 2015, when Yan Bing Tao uh, and Zhu Yulong played in the Champion of Champions as teenagers because they'd mm. won the World Cup as the China B team, that was fantastic for the event. Uh, you know, really added so much to it. So that's another option that you could possibly have. I, I like the runners-up idea, actually. You, you'll probably remember the old European Cup Winners' Cup in football. Mm. So, for example, you had Manchester United in 1994 had won the league. They also won the FA Cup. So they couldn't play in the Cup Winners' Cup because they were in the Champions League. So Chelsea got in in their place and did quite well in it. I like the idea of that, actually, because one of the strengths of the Champion of Champions is you've got a lot of players in it who aren't that high up the rankings, but they're in there because they had one really good week. Uh, you know, Matthew Selt, for example, last year got in uh, by winning the Indian Open. Holty this year getting in on the back of winning the shootout. So maybe it could be a case that whatever number of places you have left, they already have an order of merit for the tournaments. They rank the tournaments for purposes of Champion of Champions qualification. You could go down that, picking the runners up, say if there were three spots, then the three runners up uh, from the highest placed events who hadn't got in. That's another way of doing it. But look, th this way, I suppose, has, has as much merit as any of those. The funny thing is, it was a unique year. Look, this year's unique in every way, isn't it? But there were a lot of tournaments missed. Uh, there was no China Open. Uh, there was no Riga Masters. Uh, there was no World Cup. That was nothing to do with COVID, of course. It wouldn't have happened anyway. And there was no Indian Open. Uh, maybe, you know, that may come back onto the circuit at some point. So there were fewer tournaments over the last 12 months for players to get in. Maybe if it had been a full year with a full schedule, Mark Allen wouldn't have been in the tournament at all because you might have had 16 tournament winners. Yeah, and of course, that, that, it'd be interesting to see what happens next year because there may be even fewer events. You know, we don't know yeah. exa exactly what's happening. But... Um... Yeah, it'd be interesting, but it seems that they've nailed their colours to the mast with um, players off the rankings. Uh, there was some talk about we'll invite f former winners of the Champion Champions, but of course, I mean, before this year, there's only four of them. Three had qualified. It's only, yeah. only John Higgins who actually got in anyway uh, off the ranking list. But um, of course, the, one of the big incidents of the tournament came in the semi-final, uh, the quarter-final even, between Mark Allen and Ronnie O'Sullivan. Jason Phillips has emailed about this. He says, having just watched Alan V. O'Sullivan, he emailed literally about five minutes after it happened, okay? He said, having just watched Alan V. O'Sullivan, I was wondering what your view on Ronnie's behaviour was. My view was that Ronnie was trying to get his game going and as a byproduct, um, intimidate Mark. It backfired, as anyone familiar with the Belfast psyche would expect. Long Good Friday <laughs> came to Long Good Friday came to mind for me. <laughs> is, is Ronnie's history of conflict with other players starting to tarnish his reputation? I, for one, don't root for him anymore. Well... Oh, Jason, I mean, I was asked a few times about this, what I thought of the incident. This is what I think of it. It was very much like the Anthony McGill-Jamie Clark incident at the Crucible this year. And essentially for the same reason, someone was losing and didn't didn't like it. And when you're behind in a big match, your mood is obviously pretty uh, anxious, sour, call it what you like. And I think you do start to see things that you wouldn't see if you were winning and maybe convince yourself that things are happening, you know, because you're under pressure in the match. I actually think they were both in the wrong in a way. I think I don't think Alan was doing it deliberately and I don't think Ronnie was trying to intimidate him. I think it was a high-pressure match in a massive tournament and, you know, you've got to say in a lot of sports, these things happen every week and actually pretty much go uncommented upon because they're so common. On the night itself, I was on the old WhatsApp um, with, talking to a few colleagues and what I thought at the time was that I thought Ronnie actually made a little bit of a fool of himself but I also said, I think tomorrow he'll think differently. And sure enough, the next day he texted Mark and apologised, which essentially, I think, brings an end to it. 
it's fair to say a lot of a lot of people decided what they thought about this based on what they think about Ronnie. So the diehard Ronnie fans all defended him and his critics were immediately on his back. Personally, I think you can forgive what happened because these matches really matter and they should matter. And in the heat of the moment, things happen. It probably went on too long. I know the referee, Marcel Eckhart, tried to sort of intervene. He was kind of ignored. It went on too long. Mark Allen stood his ground and credit to him. It didn't affect him because when he came to the table, next chance he got, he won the match. Yeah, maybe it was just a week for really rich people not taking defeat particularly well. I mean, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> that seemed to be the theme of it. Look, of course it didn't affect Alan adversely because it was playing right into his hands. I mean, to me, it had real echoes of what happened with Ali Carter at the World Championship a couple of years ago. It was basically O'Sullivan showing his frustration, showing his opponent, yeah, you've got to me here, you've got under my skin. And in both of those matches, the opponent went on from there to win the match quite comfortably in the end. So, and yeah, I mean, it's a very good point that's made there about the Belfast psyche. Mark, of course, it isn't really from Belfast. He's from Antrim, which is, you know, a bit outside it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, you do that to, in fact, it's not even a Belfast thing. Anyone from Northern Ireland, actually, you know, if you react like that, that they're not going to take it lying down. It's going to just fuel their fire even more. And it certainly worked out pretty well for, for Mark in the end. But ultimately, if anyone lost out because of it, it was it was Ronnie, because, as you say, I think he did make a little bit of a fool of himself and, as I say, showed his opponent that he was really feeling it. Yeah, and I think, in fairness, he, he accepted that, didn't he? He's, he's, he's apologised. Um, it, I've seen it happen in other ways with him. He's had photographers thrown out at times. Mm. Um, just because he's, he's under pressure in a match, he's noticing things that maybe he, at other times he wouldn't notice. Um, but l- never mind what we think. What about Alpha Bonzi, regular correspondent? Because he, he has also emailed. And mm-hmm. he said, he said respect to Mark Allen on being the first non-champion and first non-world champion to be champion of champions. There's a lot of champions in that sentence. Mm. He said it was certainly overdue. I'm glad O'Sullivan apologised to Allen for his part in that row. But Allen owes O'Sullivan an apology too. He was standing and moving and fidgeting with his sponsor's logo in O'Sullivan's eye line. There are some pictures and video floating around that show it. Alan did not mean to do this. I imagine he'd be horrified if he saw the pictures, but it did happen. O'Sullivan's reaction was completely over the top and only succeeded in putting himself off, but he was justified to say something. That aside, Alan is a worthy winner and was the best man all week. The campaign to see O'Sullivan awarded the BBC Sports Personality of 2020 continues. Thank you, Alpha. It's not Alfie, is it? It's Alpha. Sorry. (laughs) It's not Alfie. It's Alpha. Alpha Bonzi. What's it all about? We call him the Alpha Male. Well, Fair enough. That's your view. All I would say is, I think essentially a line has been drawn under it. And as for sort of screenshots and so on, you know, this is not the Kennedy assassination. It's the really not that big a deal. I know on the, at the time it felt like it was, but like I say, in a lot of sports, people just having a go at each other is kind of every week. Uh, we'll go. We'll move on to an email from William Smith because it picks up the point about sports personality. He said, "Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Just looked at the odds for the BBC Sports Personality of the Year. Ronnie is eight to one." What surprised me was Karen Wilson was 100 to 1 and Judd Trump, Judd Trump 500 to 1. As we all know, has, Judd has had an amazing run. Personally, I feel Ronnie and Hendry's five tournament wins in a season was a bit better accomplishment due to the calibre of tournaments they won, not taking anything away from the Gibraltar Open. I think that, that sentence is laced with a bit of sarcasm. <laughs> uh, anyway, back to the point. Why have the bookmakers and casuals put so much stock on Wilson's run to the final? To make him second favourite in terms of snooker players seems bizarre. We all know a snooker player won't win especially 100 to 1 or 500 to 1 outsider. Just surprising when I look at the odds. We'll be interested in your thoughts. Well, I can't explain that, to be honest. I, don't, I mean, I guess because Karen got to the Crucible final, it does seem a bit strange. But let's talk about Ronnie and sports personality. It seems to be a sort of an endless conversation. This He's never been nominated. He's never been on the shortlist. 
this year, obviously, there's been far less sport going on. Um, he would have a claim anyway. If he'd won the World Championship in a normal year, he'd have a claim to be on there. Um, personally, I would be surprised now if he isn't. I'll say that straight away. I know that there's politics behind the decisions and all the rest of it. I'd be quite surprised. I don't think he would win it, personally, but I'd be surprised if he didn't make it on it. The question is, does it really matter? Well, it, as I've said before, it's a bit like the Olympics. It would raise the profile of snooker. It's a pat on the back for snooker uh, if he appears on it. Um, what do you think? Well, I mean, so to pick up on a point that was made there, I think sports personality tends to depend on your one big moment of the year rather than anything to do with yeah. overall consistency or anything like that. Best example of that was 2001. Michael Owen, who had already won sports personality, turned the cup final on its head with two goals in the last 10 minutes, scored a hat-trick away to Germany in a World Cup qualifier, was named winner of the Ballon d'Or, but didn't win sports personality <laughs> because he lost out to another footballer. David Beckham, who yeah. seemed to win it on the basis of one free kick against Greece. So it, it does seem to be, which obviously got England to the World Cup, where they did very well the following summer. So it does seem to be more about your one big moment than anything else. There has been a trend in, in recent times uh, for people to win sports personality. More on the basis, yeah, they've had a good year, but it's it's that in conjunction with the fact that they've had a stellar career. Now, well, yeah. this was yeah. an obvious of that now of course that led a time when ryan Giggs was whiter than white had the greatest public image of any sportsman in britain and again with so much that's happened since then it's fair to say that's changed i think there was a bit of that with tony mccoy when he won it as well well it's so, yeah it's, sorry, sorry to interrupt but it's it's, yeah. the, it's the martin scorsese principle he didn't get he didn't get any oscars for all his really classic films so they thought well, hang on you know we get to the departed i think 2004 or something we yeah. better give it. We better give it him. It's not his yeah, best. Yeah, film. Yeah. Not, it wouldn't be in his best five films, but it's it was his time. It's a similar sort of thing. I think. I think what's going to happen with it this year. I mean, I used to love BBC Sports personality. Mm. I, I think it's changed so much now that you know there've been some years I've not even watched it. But I'm always interested to see who wins because it's such a tradition going back such a long way. I think this year you may see it going to someone for reasons that actually aren't anything to do with sport at all. I mean, Marcus Rashford has been talked yeah. about. Now, it's not. I mean, Man United didn't win anything, um, so it, it's not to do with that. I think it's to do with everything that's gone out, gone on outside of that. Now, again, it's just been a unique year. Lewis Hamilton, I see, is the favourite. But, you know, you say there hasn't been that much sport this year. And I would disagree slightly because I think, that, yeah, there's been less well, than there would have been. It was supposed, but, to be, it was supposed to be an Olympic year. So yes. That's, yeah, that's gone. I mean, that, an Olympian would probably win it in an yeah. Olympic year. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is the thing. But, um, you know, at the same time, there are a lot of years that don't have Olympics. I mean, I think in the end, most things have actually happened. Now, perhaps the biggest sporting event still to come this year is the Masters, which is in a few days' time. Now, what happens if Tommy Fleetwood or Rory McIlroy or someone wins that? Then surely they become the front runner, particularly if it's McIlroy, because that would complete the career Grand Slam. So um, th this is, to be honest, for me now, the fun of sports personality is actually the speculation, because I think the programme itself is yeah. perhaps not what it used to be. Um, well, it's, an, yeah, it's, an entertainment, it's an entertainment show now yeah and I don't find it very entertaining so <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the problem with it but uh, I, wouldn't, I actually wouldn't rule out that O'Sullivan might win it because if he's on the list we know Snooker's very popular we know Ronnie's by far and away the most popular Snooker player in Britain so you could see a big support getting behind him particularly as it's not like there's one obvious candidate I mean people talked about 2013 when Ronnie obviously amazingly won the world championship after effectively not playing for the year. But 
they forget there was no way anyone other than Andy Murray was going to win it that year because I mean that was just yeah, a but story. He should he should have been on the shortlist. I was told, of, course, of course. I was told by someone I believe who worked who then worked at the BBC doesn't now but then did that very early because they get together as like a panel. Um, they call them independent, but it's chaired by the head of sport at the BBC, and a lot of the people on the panel are reliant on the BBC for work. So I'm not sure. Yeah. How it, independent it is but i was told that quite early on in the discussion ronnie was put on the table and and basically dismissed immediately so there was no there was no he didn't get close he was no short shortlist for the shortlist he was just dismissed yeah yeah no i, I mean I, I i've heard that as well and it isn't hard to believe but i think that is the thing it does seem incredible that he's never been nominated when you consider i mean how many people in british sports have been at the top for such a long period of time i mean nobody i mean nobody in any sport has been that I can think of anyway in Britain has been one of the best in the world for over a quarter of a century. I mean, in most sports, it would be impossible to do that because age would catch up with you. But here's the thing. The sports personality is on Sunday, the 13th of December. So it's on at the same time as the Scottish Open final. Now, what happens if Ronnie gets to that final? Well, uh, we, had, we had this a couple of years ago. Uh, I think I mentioned this on the podcast because we were in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, and he, there was sort of speculation because he'd won the U, UK Championship, I think. And um, there was speculation that quite strong speculation that he would um, be nominated and because they were nominating the shortlisting on the night that year. Yeah. Um, and he was waiting for a call. And I think he he would have gone. He seemed quite I mean, you never know with Ronnie, I know, but he seemed quite interested in it. Um, yeah. I mean, look, but he wasn't playing, of course. He was there for Eurosport by that point. He died. Well, I think he actually he withdrew, didn't he? And then came and did some punditry. Um, if he's in the Scottish Open final, it'll be like when Steve won it. They have to go to it. When Steve won it, he was playing in a tournament and they had to basically stop the event and hand him the trophy. Well, funny you should mention that because uh, in an article about sports personality a few years ago, it's, it was basically slagging it off. And it was slagging <laughs> off its entire history and the entire concept of it. And they said, you know, Steve Davis, I don't know if he still holds the record, actually, but he certainly at yeah. one time held the record for the most times in the top three. I know Denise Lewis was putting that record under threat and maybe Lewis Hamilton. But anyway, and it was said and when he won it, he couldn't be bothered attending. This was in the Daily Telegraph. And I wrote to the Daily Telegraph and said, well, actually, no, he was playing in uh, he was playing a match at the time. And, and to be fair to them, they did publish a clarification. Can you remember what the tournament was? It was in, I'm going to say Belgium. It was a European oh. country. Um, he was playing Terry Griffiths. I know mm -hmm. that much. Yeah. It was some. It was some sort of Norwich Union Grand Prix affair. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. It was Milan, actually. Okay, Norwich yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, of course, Steve wouldn't know that because he played Terry in the World Final that same year and claims he doesn't remember it. So he's hardly going to remember playing them in the uh, in the Norwich Union Grand Prix. But it would be interesting to see because, you know, if I mean that was quite a low key thing. If Ronnie was in contention to win it, well, you can't really stop in the middle of a frame if they're going to be presenting him with the trophy. So. I mean, what do you do? Do you, do you kind of have to have a 20-minute gap between frames? It's, it could be an interesting one. Like, I agree with you. I think it's a very good chance to be nominated. I don't think he'll win, but I wouldn't entirely rule it out. So, we'll see. Well, good luck, Jim. I think he deserves to be on there. Right. Um, <clears throat> now, you've called this already my read-my-lips moment, yeah. which refers to the last uh, president to only serve one term, George, <laughs> George Bush Sr., who said, read my lips, no new taxes, put taxes up and got voted out. You do realise this is the fourth time already we've made a reference to American presidents. Well, you this, see, uh... well, well, we're nothing if not torn from today's headlines. You yeah, see? exactly. Yeah. Ha having said that, I'm now going to nurse an old sore, OK, because mm. you'll recall I promised never to mention the triple crown business again because I was even boring myself. 
However, however, okay, as you know, I've had to self-isolate at home. There's a lot of time to fill. And this great YouTube user, MJ, MJT Snook, I don't know who it is, but... He's brilliant. Uh, Absolutely brilliant, yeah. Well, he or she, we don't know. But oh, they, sorry, yeah. Whoever they are, they've uploaded all sorts of... They must have taped everything that's ever been on. A formidable archive of old stuff. And they actually uploaded the entire 2003 World Final. Now, the first thing to say about this is when people talk about great World Finals... This one has been slightly overlooked, I think. It was a mm -hmm. fantastic match. Mark Williams was coasting to victory. Ken Doherty, as he had throughout the whole tournament, pegged him back. In the end, Mark Williams won 18-16. But here's the thing, OK. So that season, Williams had already won the UK Championship and the Masters. So he was going to the World Championship looking to complete the Triple Crown, which he duly did. So how many times did the BBC mention this in their coverage? You, they'd be all over it, wouldn't they? That would be the main narrative, the main headline. The answer is, having sat and watched it all, not once. They did not mention it once. Why? Because the Triple Crown was not a thing then. It was not a thing because they had four tournaments. Chris Small had won the LG Cup. So he'd won the first event. Mark had won the next three. At the start of the following season, Mark Williams won the LG Cup. And the BBC website reported, and this is online still. You can read it for yourselves. He re they reported, don't think I'm not looked either. Mm. They reported that he held, in quotes, the game's four major titles. They referred to it then as the BBC Grand Slam. That's an absolute fact. That's what it was called. There was no triple crown at all. But here's a twist in the tale, OK? I think I'm actually partially responsible for the whole triple crown business. Because I'm sure... I'm sure back, Irony of ironies, this. Yeah, because I'm sure back in 2003, I and, and other journalists as well, I'm sure, did actually make a thing of Mark winning those three titles in the same season. I actually think it's an achievement worthy of celebration. It's an amazing achievement. There are big titles. If you win all three in the same year, that is a major achievement. It just wasn't a widely held view in 2003. Clearly, we see that from the BBC coverage at the time. It only really started to become a thing when the BBC dropped their fourth network event in 2010. Of course, it's being pushed very hard now. I mean, it couldn't be pushed harder. They got the crowns on the waistcoats. You know, they call it the Triple Crown series. It's sort of become almost by osmosis a thing. You hear people referring to it as if it's always been there. It's been pushed because it's a way to essentially overstate the BBC's importance. They can say, look, there's all these tournaments going on these days, but we show the three important ones. OK, fine. That's marketing. That's television, whatever. I don't think World Snooker Tour should be complicit in that. If they want, as they claim, OK, to be like golf and tennis and have established majors, then fine. Be like golf and tennis. Have four majors. But they can't do that. It doesn't work because the BBC only show three events. Now, to be clear, the BBC have been hugely important to snooker. They broadcast it for over 50 years. They've been loyal to the sport. There's been times when all the politics going on, they could have walked away. They didn't. They established snooker as a major television attraction. I'm a, I'm a big defender of the BBC, actually. But they're not the only broadcaster putting money in. And here's the other thing, and I've made this point. I know I've made this point before, and people are already saying, get on with it. OK, I will. There's no equivalence between the three Triple Crown events. Snooker has one true major, that's the World Championship. It's far ahead of everything else, and then there is everything else. And also, the other thing to say is, you know, the, all the Triple Crown events are played in England. I thought it was supposed to be a world tour. So just to sort of recap, 2003, 2003, when Mark Williams, and it was a great achievement, won the UK Championship, the Masters, and the World Championship in the same season, the BBC at the time made no reference whatsoever to the Triple Crown. And now you're never going to mention the Triple <laughs> Crown again from this point on. Well, well yeah. yeah. 
It was a great final in 2003. I mean, you know, when you said you'd sat and watched it all, though, I was going to say you need to get out more. But of course, you couldn't for the last (laughs) couple of weeks. That's very much the point. I mean, at least Neil, you know, when he had a week off, um, he he came up with that idea for the uh, for the double slash singles event. I mean, can't believe you went back and watched the whole thing again. But um, well, I, I think I made this point before. It was under one of the many different administrations that the association had probably around the two. I can't remember who it was who was in charge at the time and came up with the idea, but they decided. But you know who it may, may may have been Peter. What was his name? The guy who used to be a spy. Peter Middleton. Yeah. Peter Middleton. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think he um, came up with this idea that there were going to be four majors, and the Masters wasn't one of them. It was the <laughs> World, the UK, the Grand Prix, and whatever the tournament in Thailand was at the time, which worked out brilliantly for Ken because he won the tournament in Thailand and got a load of extra ranking points. But I never heard it mentioned again after that season. You you can't contrive these things. That's the thing. I mean, you know, I mentioned the Masters there. It's going to be brilliant this weekend, as it always is. And, you know, that's something that's grown up over time. It's been so established since really the early days of professional golf as we know it. Can you really come along now and contrive these things, especially if you're going to keep changing what the majors are? I mean, that, that's obviously going to be a major problem for you if you're, if you're part of the fun. And of course, I mean, again, we have to say it, the UK's right to be in there anyway has got to be questioned now because what used to set it apart was the fact that the matches were longer than they were for any other event. And it, it isn't in that situation anymore. Well, in fact, there are other tournaments that have more frames because they have longer semifinals and finals. So you'd have to question that as well. Well, the UK Championship used to be the second biggest event without yeah. question. And, and yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't see how you can say that now. However... We welcome all opinions here, even when we don't agree with them. Joe Richards has emailed. I'll read his email because it's sort of about this. He said, I agree that the UK Championship isn't a perfect format and has had its stature questioned on the podcast, and I agree. However, it really does feel like the first real blockbuster tournament of the new season, and one that has an historical feel rather than just taking home ranking points in a trophy. I feel like World Snooker are hitting the nail on the head by having three traditional world-class tournaments, possibly having 128 players to give it a different look from the World Championship. I like the idea... He says best of six from the start. I guess it means best of 11. However, I think the semi-final should be best of 19, the final best of 25, just to add that extra bit of class importance to the tournament. That would certainly do that. I agree if you made it longer. Mm. Uh, The top 16 should maybe get a buy in round one, straight to the last 64, to allow for these extra sessions in the latter stages without burnouts. The UK stroke triple crown events should be treasured forever, but the UK still has to improve. However, the way I see it is... Is there not a single player that has the honour of wearing a crown on his waistcoat that isn't an all-time great? Just one final point. I've attached a photo of, and this obviously doesn't quite work on a podcast, but I've <laughs> seen the photo. I've attached a photo of some amazing experience, experiences me and my granddad have had going to snooker tournaments all over the UK. A snooker pilgrimage, if you like, and memories that will live with me forever, even after his time. He's currently 85 and shielding, but it's safe to say all this snooker on TV is going to make his Christmas. It's a difficult time for elderly people all over the country and I feel with OAPs having grown up with the magical game in its prime, this feast of snooker will definitely help. I have to say, having read that email from Joe, I felt a bit bad about having having decided to rant about the Triple Crown because, of course, having it, he's attached the photo. Basically, it's various tickets that he and his granddad have bought over the years. And there's a great picture of the two of them posing with the World Championship trophy. And uh, looking at the photo as I am now, it brings home actually how much how much we miss the fans. You know, they help make events. Oh, special. yeah make events special they really do and particularly in snooker where you end up actually getting to know quite a few of them you know we know the names of people who sit in the front row of the crucible um i think the one tournament actually where we'll miss where we really miss them will be the masters um 
I know people talk about the shootout, but the Masters, such an established tournament, always has had a big, rowdy, excited, engaged London crowd. We don't know exactly what's happening with that. I mean, there's news of the vaccine and all the rest of it, but that's going to take a while to roll out. The likelihood is, I guess, that it's going to be played in Milton Keynes, like everything else. It's not going to feel the same. I just want to say, though, Joe, I hope your granddad is well. Um, of course, elderly people have been shielding. It's hard to be indoors all the time. It's good that snooker's on the TV to provide some entertainment. I found that actually, you know, um, having to isolate the Championship League and the Champion of Champions. Apart from anything else, it was just a nice way to pass the time. And it's true to say as well, a lot of snooker fans, they started watching on TV with a grandparent. You know, my nan was a big Steve Davis fan. Yeah. Um, we often talk, you know, rightly of Alex Higgins bringing people to snooker, but it was a particular sort of person he brought. A lot of sort of nans and mothers like Steve Davis, they loved him because he was clean cut. And he brought as many, maybe even more people to snooker. And of course, the contrast between Davis and Higgins made their rivalry so fascinating. But it's true that you often hear people say, oh, yeah, I, I started watching, you know, by the fire on a Sunday afternoon with my nan. So best wishes to your granddad. And I do hope he enjoys all the snooker coming up. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that about Steve, just as an aside, because there was always this assumption that Alex and Jimmy were the most popular among the public. But the BBC used to get loads of fan mail when that was a thing. Mm. Um, nowadays, you just send people abuse on Twitter. And <laughs> they, they would actually do a list. They would they would keep a ranking list as to which players got the most. And Steve Davis was always way out in front of, mm. of anybody else. So I think he was perhaps the uh, the most popular in that era. Anyway, that's by the by. What you mentioned there was the historical feel of the UK. And that definitely, I think, is the one thing that it really has in its favour. It's been the same trophy since 1991. So, you know, that's nearly 30. Well, this will be the 30th year, actually, of, of this trophy being played for. So things like that are part of it. It's always been played, always at that time of year, sort of late November, early December. So that is the big plus. And, of course, we'll all enjoy it, although it will feel different this year. And just as we're talking about the UK, I saw the draw the other day. Very surprised not to see the name of the five times champion. Stephen Hendry, because that means he won't have played in anything in the first half of what was supposed to be his comeback season. My feeling on that, and he sort of said it himself, or he said it, sort of said it on ITV, he doesn't feel ready. But I, I do think, and he would have seen it up close last week, when he sees the way that Trump and Robertson and O'Sullivan and Allen and Murphy and Selby, the real top players, Ding, are playing at the moment, I think he feels that he just cannot, cannot get to that level. So it's whether he comes back, plays in a tournament, is happy to get through a few rounds, get a few results, but then face the possibility of being absolutely hammered by someone at the top of the rankings. Um, it's like Neil Fold said, though, you know, worst comeback ever. If you're going to come back, you've actually got to play. <laughs> and the longer he leaves it, I actually think the worse it'll be for him. It, I think it, what would have been ideal would have been entering, for example, next week, Northern Ireland Open. You never know what draw you're going to get, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a slightly below the radar event chance to get a few matches potentially under his belt, build himself into the season. I think the longer he leaves it, the harder it's going to be. There have been a couple of instances um, of players making comebacks long after they've finished playing and only coming back very, very briefly. Bjorn Borg played in the Monte Carlo tennis tournament in 1991. He hadn't played for about a decade. Incredibly, he turned up with a wooden racket. I mean, what was he thinking? And he got absolutely hammered in the first round. And I don't think he played again. Peter Oosterhuis, the golfer, he came back in about 93. And I think bowed out after one event and you know people think they can come back and you know look you know it can happen in any sport I mean even someone like Stephen Hendry who, who's very aware of what the standard is like he obviously feels he can still compete to some degree but he may come back and find that uh, he's not quite able for it and the fact that as we say he hasn't played at all suggests he is feeling that way so 
I wouldn't be at all surprised if it never happens and he just decides, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm not prepared to put in the hours anymore. And when you've done as much as he's done, that's absolutely fine. Well, push will come to shove at the World Championship. If he doesn't enter that, then what's yeah. the point? What's the point? Yeah. So we'll see maybe down the line. Of course, Scottish Open, Scottish Open is for the Stephen Andrew Trophy. So yeah. it, seems, it seems he almost has to play in that. Anyway, we're going to move on because uh, last week uh, we got to talking about um, essentially snooker players on old sitcoms. Um, this started, Dave Tyndall mentioned a snooker match. In He's a regular correspondent. He mentioned yep. a snooker match in Terry and June. And that led us talk, talking about Stuart and Steptoe and Son, and me half remembering Ray Reardon being in an old episode of Sorry. Um, we're nothing if not contemporary here. We're 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 a heart <laughs> we're a heartbeat away from a, a Peter Kay stand-up routine about Bullseye. That's that's how contemporary we are. But anyway, Dave Tyndall. Anyway, I knew he would l- look this up, and he Judy went and found the episode of Sorry, and he sent me some screenshots of Ray Reardon with Ronnie Corbett. So he was in it, and Dr. Tim Sandal has gone one step further because he has presented us with essentially a history of Ray Reardon's appearances on British light entertainment shows. Now, anyone wow. under, anyone under the age of about 50 uh, <laughs> might wonder what any of this is about, but I will read it and, you know, who knows? You might you might learn something. So this is Dr. Tim Sandal. He said, with reference to the conversation around Ray Reardon and the appearance on Ronnie Corbett's not-so-funny sitcom, there's one in the eye for Ronnie Corbett, oh. uh, sorry, I can confirm the six-time world champion did appear in an episode of Sorry, this was in 1985, along with referee John Smythe, in an episode entitled A Little Something Set, a- Set Aside. There's no sign of this on YouTube, but it's very vi- verified on IMDb. Well, Dave Tyndall found it somewhere, so it's knocking about somewhere. Um, but he says Reardon didn't stop here in his attempts to dazzle the world of light entertainment. Among his other appearances were such moments in the spotlight as 1976, The David Nixon Show. 1979, now there's a few in 1979, because of course he'd won the World Championship in 1978. So 1979, the Paul Daniels Magic Show, A Question of Sport, Parkinson, International Pro Celebrity Golf. 1981, Punchlines. No idea what that is, but at oh, the Oh, I end, remember that. Well, that was, at, um, that well, was Lenny the, Bruce, I think. Was it, who was who? Was Lenny Bruce the presenter of that? It wouldn't be Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bennett, maybe. Lenny Bennett, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Lenny, Bruce, Lenny Bruce was an edgy American stand-up. Yes, I don't think yes. he'd be presenting what I'm imagining was an ITV daytime horrible sort of light entertainment show the thing about punchlines is it, it it ends with an exclamation mark which almost tells you everything you need to know about it yeah so does sorry actually <clears throat> yeah true. anyway sorry, not, sorry. Yeah, we continue 1984 rodney muse saturday special also 1984 saturday superstore <laughs> of course after after that i guess ray he sort of he, became, he, he, he went down the rankings a bit and people like steve davis and alex higgins and jimmy took over anyway he said aside from these gems there was a series called Pro Celebrity Snooker, which ran yeah. from 1978 to 1982 on the ITV network, where snooker players like Reardon, Dennis Taylor and Alex Higgins were teamed up with such luminaries. <laughs> talk luminaries. That, 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 see what you think. Gareth Hunt, Kenny, oh, brilliant. Kenny Lynch and Bill Maynard. Now, of course, we, we mentioned Bill, May- Bill Maynard before, but misbehaving during the 85 final. Tim says, fortunately, I'm too young to have seen this. You'll also be fascinated to know that between 1969 and 81, there were 195 episodes of Pop Black broadcast on the BBC and Reardon featured in 52 of them. I'm sure there are other interesting facts lurking in the TV archives about other players, but Reardon was one of the first to see a market outside of the mainstream snooker as a celebrity, something that Hearn and Davis exploited to good measure in the 80s. I completely agree. And actually, there's a link. Uh, the David Nixon show, David Nixon was a, a magician, and he actually presented the first Pop Black trophy 
1969 to Ray Reardon. And it's certainly true, I think, Ray, because, he, of course, he was doing exhibitions, he understood that side of it. I think when Snooker, because he had to wait a long time to turn pro, he was like 35 when he turned pro, he'd been a minor, he'd been a policeman, suddenly had his chance, and he seized it. And he, he, I think it's true, he was the sort of first snooker professional to realise that it wasn't just about playing matches, it was about an opportunity to promote yourself. And, you know, God love him, he's still going strong at the age of uh, 88 now, I believe. My head hurts. You know, there's just so much there. The uh, the idea of him appearing on Saturday Superstore in 1984, I'm, I'm just sort of envisaging, you know, Ray Reardon sitting on the sofa with Simon Le Bon and Holly Johnson and, and, and Re- Ridgely lurking in the background somewhere. And, yeah, and Rene from a lower low. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you saw that episode <laughs> yeah. as well. The, um, the other thing as well, when you sent me that picture, um, you passed it on to me, the one of, of uh, Ronnie Corbett and Ray Reardon, I noted that the sort of font, I think that it was build a snooker championship of the entire world it must have been like a dream sequence or something but it was in the, the same font that they used to have the benson and hedges logo for the masters and it looked like the table they used to have for the masters which basically looked like a cigarette packet so that suggests to me it was probably filmed at wembley conference yeah. center during it but an incredible coincidence the day after you sent me that which i think was the day after we'd been talking about it someone else entirely unrelated to it sent me a clip of ronnie corbett playing golf on television. So <laughs> snooker one day, golf the next. And that leads me on then to you mentioned pro celebrity. I, I don't remember that actually because it was too long ago. But I do know that probably about 15, 20 years ago now, I found an old newspaper at home. And the date on it was the 3rd of August 1980. It had obviously been kept in the house because that was the day my sister was born. And I remember looking at the listings and there it was, ITV, whatever, three o'clock in the afternoon, pro celebrity snooker. So that, that was my only only knowledge of that. Um, and one other thing as well to mention while we're talking about all this thing, there was an episode of Ever Decreasing Circles, which was actually called Snooker, and it revolved around a, a snooker tournament that was played in the local pub. And there was a whole narrative built around it. It wasn't because it wasn't really about that. It was about the different characters and you know how this tournament sort of fed into different aspects of their lives and their psyches. So I mean, it just shows you back then there were hardly any shows that didn't touch on snooker at some point because, as we always yeah. say, it was just so mainstream, so massive in Britain at that time. Very much so. Every Degree in Circles, one of Ricky Gervais's favourite sitcoms. Yeah. Under, underrated sitcom, Richard Breyer's, etc., etc. Uh, I, 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 I fear for our 21-year-old listener in Italy right now, because we, <laughs> this just sounds like two old men talking about old telly. But because anyway, it is. That's exactly well, what it is. Well, let's continue in that vein, because Dave Tyndall has also been in contact. He said, I haven't, had to, I haven't had time to actually play the new doubles event invented by Neil Foles last week. <laughs> But I have come up with the pairings for what I've termed the snooker in popular culture masters. Okay, so he's not played this yet, but wow. he has to get... These are the pairings. Now, this is just some, there's some caucus here. Okay, firstly, Terry and June. A nod to the episode of their sitcom called Snookered. Next, Robin Asquith and Bill Maynard. Both are in confessions of a holiday camp, with Asquith getting his leg over on a snooker table within the first 10 minutes of the film. Bill, as mentioned on past, past podcasts, got rowdy at the 85 Blackboard final. Next. Jacob Rees-Mogg and Trotsky. <laughs> Based on a line from Phil Yates in a previous podcast, when the muse that Alex Higgins had once had Eddie Chantler as a doubles partner said it was akin to Jacob Rees-Mogg being paired with Trotsky. Now, the thing about that is, obviously, I was on that podcast. I have no memory of that, but that's exactly, I remember the, sort of, it. Yeah, that's I exact, that's exactly the sort of thing Phil would say. Yes. So, uh, uh, Ronnie Corbett and Ray Reardon, based on the episode of the BBC sitcom Sorry When Ronnie's Snooker Ability Impresses a Lady and Leads to Marriage, Six Times World Champion Reardon, is the best man at his wedding. I feel we're, we're getting information all the time about this episode. Just sort of with every email we get, we're getting a picture of what this episode was. 
Uh, next, Ronnie Barker and Ronnie O'Sullivan. Given that Corbett has already been paired with Ray Reardon, it comes in comes O'Sullivan to give us a two Ronnies partnership. Harry H. Corbett and Wilfred Bramble, based on the Step Johnson episode mentioned last week called Pop Black. I wonder if anyone's still listening to this. Mm. Uh, Ray Davis and Steve Davis, London namesakes. Ray mentions billiards in the Kink Song Village Green Preservation Society. He also handles a cue well. See that pick I sent you in comparison to Paul McCartney playing golf. He did send me a pick. You're quite right. Ray Davis has played snooker. And the Beatles, eight days a week, uh, singles cover, they appeared to be on the golf course. And Paul McCartney, Dave wasn't very impressed with Paul McCartney's uh, sort of grip. But um, you, you, could, you could argue you should just let it be. Uh, mm, very good. Thank, thank you. Um, and finally, don't start, by the way. We haven't got time for any more. No, yeah, um, yeah. Um, let's get back to uh, the email. Uh, and the final pairing, Stephen Hendry and Jimmy White. As well as being forever linked due to their crucible battles, both have featured in popular culture. Hendry is a very weird Clydesdale classic when the table turns to water. It was Clyde side classic, I think, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it was. Yeah, and Jimmy in a 1984 advert for Tree Ball Soft I, 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 This passed me by, but apparently he was in that. Draw to be named next week. Action begins during lockdown. We look forward to that. Matt Tarrant. But have you got any comments on any of that? Or oh, yeah. Have, 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 have I ever? Have I ever? Well, first of all, I love the fact that Dave says, I haven't had time to play that out. Yeah. Now, that that's suggests he's intending oh, to no, play he will, a yeah. format. Yeah, yeah he'll, he'll get that done and send us the results in about five years' time. Just as we're talking about the doubles, something occurred to me after we'd been talking about it last week. Again, people of a certain age will remember that a curious feature of sort of Christmas time television in the 1980s was celebrities going to children's wards of hospitals. Very often it was on Christmas morning. Just a really curious thing. And it was parodied by Alan Partridge, actually, in the um, spoof Christmas show that they made. But they actually incorporated this into the world doubles in I think it was 1984. They brought a load of the players. Now, I'm telling you, again, anyone who was around at that time would know. You're talking here about some of the biggest celebrities in Britain, and they descended on the children's ward of what I guess would have been, I don't know, Northampton General Hospital, if there is such a thing. Alex Higgins was there. I remember they showed him. They filmed all this, of course, and showed it on the coverage. And they showed Alex asking a kid, who do you think is going to win this tournament we're playing in at the moment? And the kid actually looked a little bit you know, frightened by this. If you've got Alex Higgins basically mm -hmm. asking you, you know, am I going to win this event? So he just went, oh, I don't know, really. And if it was 84, it turned out to be the year that um, that Alex did win it in conjunction with, with with Jimmy White. So, I mean, that was really bringing together a couple of things of the mid 80s, the, the Christmas visits to children's wards and also the doubles. And sorry, I'm going to go off on a slight segue here because I do love this story. You mentioned Ray Davies there, who, of course, mm. is the singer of the Kinks, very famous British band. I saw Ray Davies performing a, a solo concert in Dublin eight years ago. And obviously one of the Kinks most famous songs was Lola. And four guys who were obviously big fans had turned up and they had the letters L-O-L-A on the respective <laughs> T-shirts. But this, this, what, what happened next was just, just brilliant. As the night went on, obviously a few drinks had been taken. Maybe one of them had gone out to the bathroom and come back. So that all got mixed up. So now the letters were all in the wrong order. And the brilliant thing about this, and this must have made these guys live because they were obviously big Kinks fans. When Ray Davies sang Lola, and it gets to the bit where he spells out L-O-L-A. He spelled it out in the order of the guy's <laughs> T-shirts and pointed to each of them individually as he was doing it. What a fantastic thing to happen to you when you go to a gig. Sorry, you couldn't mention Ray Davies without me telling that story. That, no, that, refl that reflects well on him, I think. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. You talk about Christmas television. I, I'll never forget, and it's true, someone, someone described Christmas specials 
as longer versions of programs you've tried to avoid all year. Uh, there's a bit of truth in that. Anyway, we'll continue. Uh, try and steer this back on course. Matt Tarrant mentions a short film called Extended Rest. He said, uh, he said I thought there was a snooker scene in, in the prison comedy Porridge. When I googled Porridge snooker, a link came up of an article about this film. Terry, the lead character, is played by Tony Asaba, who appeared in Porridge as Jim Jock McLaren. It's absolutely true. Neil Folds is in the film. Neil Folds is in oh, yeah. Extended yeah, yeah, yeah. Rest. And the best, the best, well, not the best thing, but what, what I love about it is at the end, there's a sort of you have been watching final credit scene where everyone has to wave to the camera. So Neil has to do this sort of, because it's always awkward, little wave to the camera. But yeah, that's, I think that's knocking about online. Now, um, raising the stakes a little bit, Deco on Twitter is convinced that Billy Snadden once appeared in an ITV drama about a snooker agent. And he said, "You might, you might know about that because I have no knowledge of it at all." No, I've, I've never, I've never heard of that at all. It's Billy Snadden, of course, who got to the final in China, wasn't it, where he played John Higgins? Um, yeah. I've never heard of this one at all. What was Billy? Was was he a policeman himself at one point? I know he's you and Henderson was, but he became. Yeah, I, I don't know whether he still is. After when he retired from snooker, became one. But here's the thing: I was thinking about this. Okay, obviously they wanted some authenticity. Now, Billy, I. I Billy's a great guy and he was a very good player, but he wasn't an absolute top player. Why would they have him? I mean, presumably, maybe they had a check, a check, a wish list, Stephen Hendry, John Higgins, Alan McManus. But with the greatest respect to Billy, he wouldn't be that widely known. So why not just get an actor to play the, to play the part? Why has he actually got to be a snooker player? I don't know. Listen, I don't know if, he, if this is true. It seems so specific. It probably must be. Because why? It's not the sort of thing you would make up unless you're deranged. I'm not, I'm not suggesting Deco is. Um, Billy Snadden may well have been in an ITV drama. We don't know, but maybe Billy, Billy's listening. He could let us know. Uh, Ian it Shelton, seems unlikely yeah. anyone's still listening at this point after some of the roads we've gone down. No, it, it's, I, a bit, it's a bit ragged, this edition, but, you know. I do, I do, I do have to go, to go down a couple of points there. Just as yeah. well they asked Neil to be in that film Extended Rest and not Dominic, because Dominic would have probably insisted <laughs> that the Extended Rest was called something else. Listeners <laughs> to previous episodes will yeah. remember that. And I've just remembered as well, I don't know if you quite call it light entertainment, but the... I think that the phrase cult program was probably invented for the old Australian drama Prisoner Cell Block H. I mean, mm. it was about as cult as you can possibly get, not least because it used to be on literally after midnight yeah. in weeks when there wasn't snooker on and it was filling that slot. And I do remember watching this once and uh, there was one of the prisoners. It was about a women's prison and they had a snooker table in it and she was kind of considered to be the, uh, the prison expert on the game on the grounds that she had once had dinner with Eddie Charlton. And <laughs> well... Go well, on. no, you say that. Eddie Charlton, I was just thinking about this, he was mentioned in an episode of Home and Away. I remember it very clearly. They were playing pool, and someone like, it's one of these where, it's a bit like the Terry and June episode, someone's unexpectedly really good at it. And the, one of the characters says, oh, I'm playing Eddie Charlton. He was a bit, obviously a big name. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the thing about him was that, you know, not only was he obviously one of the best snooker players in the world, but he was involved in sport in all kinds of other ways in Australia, <laughs> and, and indeed carried the torch uh, yes. For part of its relay in the 1956 Olympics, I think also as well what may have contributed to Eddie's fame, there was a tournament. Not I'm not talking about the one that ran um, in Brentwood and Doncaster. Th there had previously been another tournament called the World Match Play, and Eddie won it. And Clive actually says that it was reported in Australia that Eddie had actually won the World Snooker Championship, which of course he never actually won. So that may have contributed to the scale well, of fame. Well, Cl Clive also said that Eddie did very little to discourage that notion. <laughs> yeah, 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 indeed. Well uh, 
We'll move on. Ian Shelton, a brief email. He says, just a far-off memory of the Steve Davis sports quiz on ITV in the mid-80s, hosted by the legend himself. Funnily enough, after Ian emailed, I saw on Twitter someone actually posted a TV Times um, cutting of, of this programme. It was 1983, because the, the prize was a trip to the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. I have no memory of this at all, but I don't know how Steve had time to appear on all these TV shows because yeah. he was pl- playing all the tournaments, but he hosted his own sports quiz, it seems. Yeah, I do remember that very, very vaguely. And of course, you know, you talk about all the practice he used to do in those days. He used to say he did eight hours a day, but it's probably because he only had about two days left in the month to practice with everything he was doing at the time. But, you know, you, you would almost think Barry wanted to cash in on Steve's fame at the time by getting him on <laughs> everything he possibly could. You know, or you would almost think that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, well, you know, we've run through so many there, but but I suspect there are probably a lot more out there. Of, oh, of, well, yeah, of these, this sort of thing. Well, we haven't even mentioned. I mean, Dennis, Dennis Taylor. Must, I mean, he was on the. I know he was on the Val Dunican show one Christmas. I think it's eighty six or it maybe. Was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because he actually told me because they repeated it for some reason on BBC Four a couple of years ago, and he told me he got sent a check for literally about forty two quid or something. I mean, it was literally like a residual. Um, and he would have been on all, sort, all sorts of things because again, he was you know very dependable. Um, I had a, a message on on Twitter from uh, Wayne Griffiths, Terry's son who said that um, there's an episode of In Sickness and In Health, which is the follow-up to uh, Till Death Goes Part, Alf Garnet. Um, and he said that Alf Garnet is watching snooker in the episode and Terry's playing and he's calling him all sorts of names that we won't, we won't use on this podcast. Um, but again, just illustrating the fact that uh, snooker was in the, so much in the culture that that would be, people would recognise that and they, that they, you know, that's why they might find it funny. Of course, the other link to In Sickness and Health, I think the theme tune was done by Chaz and Dave uh, of Snooker Loop. Oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. sounds right, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll move on. <laughs> we'll move on. Tony Finnegan, he said, I would like to recommend the greatest snooker movie of them all. It's not a long list, Tony, in fairness. He said, released in 1984 at the height of Snooker's heyday, the film was called Number One. It starred none other than Bob Geldof as a struggling snooker player attempting to make it big in the game through the various dodgy dealings. The film boasts a fantastic cast, including Mel Smith, Alistair Steadman, Alfred Molina, and even Ian Jury. The film includes a memorable scene at the Crucible Theatre where Geldof's snooker match ends in a punch-up in front of the live TV cameras. The film didn't win any awards, but well worth a watch for any snooker fan. A couple of things about number one. Um, I actually quite like it. It's not any good, but I quite like it. And You're right, it is a great cast. Um, it was filmed... I mean, Bob Geldof was lead singer of the Boomtown Rats. By that point, they were kind of on the slide. But it was just before he, of course, his life was transformed mm. when he took, you know, Band Aid and then Live Aid and became a campaigner um, for African famine and so on. Um, but it was just in the middle of all that. So at the time, he was kind of, that's probably why he took the part because he kind of needed the work. Um, he's playing Alex Higgins effectively. But what I like about it is they tried to make it authentic. So Ted Lowe's in it. And John Williams, the great referee, he refereed the semi-final in the in the film. But in the final, he's replaced he's replaced by Freddie Parrot Face Davis, who now this is not Fred Davis who we mentioned earlier. Yeah. This, is a, this was a popular sort of musical comedian who, for some reason, it was it was judged he should referee the final, and John, you know, on the sidelines. Um, you've seen number one, of course. No, I've not. I've not. I've oh. never actually seen it. I, I know we talked about having a viewing of it one night, but I've never actually seen. You got to wonder about the casting, though. I mean, you say it's a kind of Alex Higgins character. And they got Bob Geldof to play him. I mean, why on earth they thought Bob Geldof could play a foul-mouthed anti-establishment Irishman who was big in the 1970s? I've, I've absolutely no idea. You know? 
Yeah, well, of course, it, it, it was strange, actually, that he would want to play in the world final because, of course, he doesn't like Mondays. But yeah, uh, anyway. Very good, very good indeed. Yeah. The, the, the other thing, of course, sorry, I know we're going off on many tangents today, but we've been on so many, we might as well go on another one. And it's very tenuously related to snooker. And you'll know this because I told you. And I only found this out a few weeks ago, the famous scene where Bob Geldof is berating Margaret Thatcher mm. um, at some do about not doing enough for Africa and the famine and all the rest of it. Who's standing behind Bob Geldof when he's doing it? But the soon-to-be world darts champion, John Lowe. It's just an extraordinary piece of 1980s cultural trivia that has remarkably gone unreported for all these years until now. Well, we're bringing it to people, you see. You know, they make all this yeah. fuss about they make all this fuss about Baywatch, but this this is where you this is where you're finding stuff out. Um, and let's raise the bar a little bit uh, because Richard Westcott, the BBC science correspondent, he wrote to us a few weeks ago. He's written back. He said, "Thanks for answering my last email about Stephen Hendry's yips. I played the podcast to my wife and kids, but they didn't seem quite as excited as I was for some strange reason." Uh, he said, I'd like to get your thoughts on some technical stuff that interests me and hopefully other listeners. So there's three points here. Number one, the new chalk. What's different about it and why doesn't Ronnie use it? Well, this is the Talum uh, chalk. It's from Finland, Finnish chalk. And it's reckoned to essentially eliminate kicks. And I think the, the, the idea is that the chalk essentially stays on the tip of the cue rather than lands on the cue ball. Um, you get kicks traditionally with sort of you know bad contacts something on the cue ball usually chalk uh it's it's seems that they've found a way of the chalk staying on the on the tip of the cue more a lot of the players seem to swear by it why ronnie doesn't use it he actually he actually spoke about this himself at the english open on the Eurosport. he said that essentially he's kind of always used the same stuff and it's kind of worked for him and i don't think you could argue it's worked for him he said he may change but at the moment uh, you're going to stick with it. And of course, that's the problem with it, isn't it? If the, if your opponent's not using it, if your opponent's using the other chalk, then, then there is going to be chalk on the cue ball. So for it to really work, both players have to use it. But, um, you know, obviously it's individual choice from, for players. I, I remember uh, asking Anthony Hamilton about this, actually, around the time it had come out. And um, he wasn't using it. He reckoned it gave more miscues. Mm. So, you know, that, again, is a matter of opinion. And, uh, Gary Wilson, after he lost in the world fi- semi-final, sorry, um, seems so long ago now, doesn't it? Uh, 2019. <clears throat> he was talking about this, and I think he was he, he was raising the issue of, of town chalk, and he reckoned everyone should be made to use it. And I raised this point with him about how you know it's been suggested by some players that maybe it led to more miscues. And I think the whole conversation about this town chalk went on for about five or ten minutes in the press conference. Now, of course, as you know, when you get to the final weekend of the World Championship, most of the people there aren't actually people who cover snooker at all the rest of the year. And, you know, I was just imagining them, them ringing their sports desks and saying, oh, you won't believe this. We've had this great press conference just talking about snooker chalk. You know, let's hold the back page with this one. So um, it, it, it became a, you know, a very sort of technical thing. Probably none of the quotes ever saw the light of day. But I think more and more over time now, I think most players have come around to it now, haven't they? Yeah. And I mean, I don't you can't I don't think you can force people to use a particular brand of chalk um, apart from anything else there's sort of monopoly you know issues there as well but it, it does seem to work I mean it does seem to work so you know that, that's good his second question Richard's second question the RAS on tables he said watching the champion of champions what a great comp by the way I've never heard players and commentators wax lyrical so often about a cloth Hendry couldn't contain himself it's normally quite the opposite in fact with players lining up to criticise the tables especially at the world championship it seems why was that surface so different, so much better? Is it made differently? 
Is it other factors like humidity in the arena? Does the lack of a crowd make a difference to the temperature and moisture levels in the hall? I might be overthinking it. Well, no. I mean, it, it, the Rasson table, obviously, they usually use star tables. Rasson table, it's a different table. It will, you know, there will be different things about it. Um, one of the things possibly, you know, it could even be just slight things like maybe it's a slightly different sort of rubber on the, on the cushions or whatever. It's a slightly different table. It, they always look the same, kind of, but they, they all play differently. Um, the, the definitely sort of atmospherics and weather can play a part. I mean, the, the table is always heated. It's always heated anyway um, to sort of maintain a particular level. I guess if, if there's a room full of people, though, that will affect, you know, the the temperature. It did play beautifully. No question about it. Lovely cloth. Of course, conditions have changed a lot over the years. You know, you go back 40, 30 years, the balls, because they were made from a different chemical, they were heavier, the cloths were thicker. It's harder to split the reds and make a big break. You know, now you go into them, they split lovely. So conditions are favourable to, to heavy scoring. It helps that the players are so good as well, of course. Um, but yeah, they, there's definitely, I think there's, there's, you know, one thing that even Barry Hearn can't control is the weather. And, mm. you know, you definitely, humidity is a factor. John Parrott used to win a lot of tournaments out in, in Asia where traditionally there was high humidity and the cloths, you know, played heavier. He had such great cue power that he seemed able to cope with that. Um, but yeah, do you have anything to say on that? Or shall I no, on? Just, yeah. just to echo that, I, I literally cannot think of any tournament I've ever seen where I saw the cloth play so well. Right from the first bit of it I saw, I thought that cloth is playing so well. These players are really going to thrive on it. And I couldn't think of any tournament where I'd ever seen it run so well. It was absolutely striking to anyone who understands the game uh, how good it was. Uh, the other thing about those Rasson tables, I think some of the players are a little bit disadvantaged by them because I think they're just marginally higher than the star ones, or certainly at mm. one point they were. They were a little higher off the ground. Now, if you're a shorter player, then you're going to have to use the rest a bit more. So it's just uh, another little thing to bear in mind about them. But, um, you, you know, you'd always be a bit wary when new tables are being introduced, new makes of tables. But the Rasson ones have been around for some tournaments for a few years now. And uh, I think they're fantastic. And, and, and the one last week was, was absolutely brilliant. Richard's final question. He said, I stumbled across a Ronnie Masterclass on YouTube where he explained how pros change their grip on their rear hand to adjust the strength of the shot rather than hit it harder. A loose grip for soft, tight. A loose grip, loose grip for soft, tight for lots of backspin. How could I have been playing and watching all these years and not noticed? As an amateur, I've always held the cue the same way for each shot and just hit it harder or softer as needed. I love those moments in sport where you find out the pros play a totally different game. I've recently taken up golf after 30 years and everything's different. Uh, leaning back to hit drives on the up, lifting your head after the shot. Have professional snooker techniques changed much over the years? Well, I'm sure they have. I mean, the point is, if you go back, say John Spencer, let's 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 pick him. He didn't have anyone to watch on TV. That's the thing you've already said. You can go on YouTube and, and watch how the pros play. Like, those guys in the early days, I mean, Dominic, Dominic Dell sort of talked about this when he's on the podcast. They had to work, just sort of figure, figure it out themselves. And there was no sort of given way of playing. You know, you, you had to work it out yourself. The players that have come along since have had the opportunity to study them. Of course, Steve Davis famously had the Joe Davis book. Him and his father studied that with the advice about technique. Um, I think they have changed over the years. Um, and I think that is why, you know, standards have risen. I think, you know, you look at someone like Sean Murphy, for example, probably got the perfect technique. Um, and actually, Mark Allen, the way he plays, is slightly different, different to some players. But he's such a good positional player. He always seems to be right behind the object ball. Um, as we saw last week. So, yeah, I think definitely uh, things have changed, but it's because 
there's an opportunity to study it. You can literally go on YouTube tonight and spend hours and hours watching Ronnie and other people demonstrating how to play. Or you could watch the 2003 World Championship <laughs> final again. And, and, and then have a bitter rant about it the following week on a podcast, yeah. The other thing, of course, that's different between players now and players in the era of John Spencer, the example you used there, is they didn't practice anything like as much. Yeah. You know, that they all work a lot harder at the game now, so it's so well, well held. And Murphy's well, that, the classic example of that. He just looks so well oiled. Well, that's Davis again. Steve Davis started yeah. that again. You know, they, there was a thing on Sky, um, which I could... It actually, weirdly, it was... They showed it twice in a row for some reason. But anyway, it was about great sportsmen. And it was Steve Davis and people like Dennis Taylor, Willie, when he, when he was still with us, John Parrott, John Virgo, these sort of people. And they were all saying that, that you know, they couldn't believe how much Steve practiced. He, he raised the bar so much because they would have a, like an hour, maybe a bit of lunch, play golf, maybe another hour's practice. Steve was there all day long, honing his technique, improving, forcing everyone else to do the same. So he definitely, I think, started that. Um, I'm, I'm aware that we're kind of running on and on here, but let's let's continue. Um, James Heat says, hi, I've only just started to listen to your podcast. I find it very interesting. I wonder if you can answer this question. Given that the referee takes great care to ensure that all balls are clean, why is it OK for the player to place the cue ball by hand in the D? Why doesn't the referee clean the cue ball once the players have decided where to place the white? Well, it's an interesting question. I think, I mean, obviously, if a player goes in off, you, you do then see the referee clean the cue ball. But you're right, the player then picks it up, puts it in the D. Obviously, they're only very briefly um, handling it. Um, maybe it's a slight anomaly, I don't know. Um, I don't, I haven't, I've never heard anyone mention this before. So, James, you're the first person I've ever mentioned this, but it's an interesting question. Yeah, I think I might be taking things a little too far. But what, what I would say is one thing I've always felt... You often see it at the end of a frame um, when the referee goes to take the balls out of the pockets again. The players sometimes kind of help. They pick a few out. Some players do it more than others. Neil Robertson does it quite a lot, actually. Just reach in, pick a few balls out, throw them on the table. They're not helping themselves at all because the players have so much perspiration on their hands. It gets onto the balls. It creates more bad contact. So whatever about it being you know, not allowed or whatever... I certainly don't think it's good for the players to do that. They should try not to touch the ball. But I think the idea of placing it and then it being cleaned, I think that might get a little bit tedious after a while. Well, of course, Alex Higgins for a time used to, used to lick the cue ball clean. Yeah. At least used to, but that's not really recommended, certainly in these times of COVID. Um, mm. Now, Donal Murtar writes, long-time listener, semi-regular emailer. I'll save Dave the bother of consulting with Michael again about how to pronounce my name. <laughs> it rhymes with Tonal. My, my worry now, okay, so Donal Tonal, I get that. His surname, M-U-R-T-A-G-H, Murta? Murta? Exactly, yeah, spot Murta. on. Yep. Okay, let's get to the business. So I previously sent an email about resurrecting aggregate score play. The supposed benefit of this much maligned format is it will reduce the boring play at the end of many frames when a player requires three or four snookers and forlornly attempts to acquire them, but almost always fails. Incidentally, Neil Robertson was asked at a Q&A what snooker rule he would change and he proposed that if more than two snookers are required, the frame would automatically be over. Just on that, I've seen the UK Championship last year. I think he won a frame having needed four, Neil. Mm. And actually, he, last week, you know, he was threatening to win them. So anyway, but yeah, that's by the by. It was against Yan Bing Tao, wasn't it? I think he was 5-0 down. He was 5-0 down, yeah. And he, on, yeah. He, he battled on, uh, yeah. I quite like playing on for snookers, actually. But anyway, do, uh, Donald continues. When one point, when one can point to the very rare occasions where a player requiring three or four snookers acquired them, is that really worth suffering the 99.9% of cases when they don't? Anyway, my previous email was quite rightly shot down by Dave and Michael, who pointed out 
But in limited frames match with aggregate scoring, this could exacerbate the very problem I'm attempting to remedy. For example, the player's already 150 points ahead at the end of the penultimate frame and aggregate scoring best of nine, the final frame is effectively a write-off. Instead, what about an unlimited frames aggregate scoring match, e.g. first player to 1,000 points wins? And as many frames as are necessary are played for someone to reach this total. Wouldn't this completely eliminate the drudgery of players attempting to secure a highly improbable number of penalty points in order to win a frame? This is how all straight pool matches are scored, i.e. one keeps re-racking the balls until the total target is reached. I'm no game theoretician. I can't even say that word. Um, But I'm going to christen the current malaise that occurs at the end of many frames near-zero jeopardy play. In other words, one player is forced to play on despite the result being a near fait accompli and is relying on the dignity of his opponent to call an end to the farce. Usually common sense prevails, particularly now Peter Ebden's retired. (laughs) But on one memorable occasion, Alain Robidoux played on from a hopeless position against Ronnie O'Sullivan purely out of spite. Perhaps this pure aggregate scoring could be trialled in the same event as the singles-doubles-singles-doubles format proposed by Folsey for maximum effect. In for a penny, in for a pound. Well, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, you give your view, because I need to cough. I'm going to do, do it off mic. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we maybe mentioned this before, that the, the first sort of international event that Stephen Hendry won, he'd won the Scottish Professional Championship, but the first event he won with an international field was the Australian Masters in 1987, which was played on aggregate scores. I'm not a big fan of it at all. I, I mean, this, the, the idea of setting a target of a thousand points, well, if anything, you might be more likely to get one player miles and miles ahead. You could have someone on sort of, I don't know, 950 and someone else only on 200. I mean, think how many frames he's going to have to win to catch that up. So it's unlikely to be turned around. So can't say I'm a particularly big, big, big fan of the idea. Oh, and the thing is, playing on for snookers, it can be dull, I agree, it can be, but... It's part of the psychology of the game because what you're essentially doing, actually, it's partly messing your opponent around and it's a test of their temperament. You know, they feel they've won the frame, but they've got to keep their focus, their concentration. I watched on YouTube, not that I've had time on my hands, but I I watched on YouTube a match between, well, it's not the whole match, but it's a particular frame between Jimmy White and John Spencer at the 1987 British Open, I think it's called a finals. And the, on the thing, it said that Spencer won the frame with five snookers. Spoiler alert. He actually needed six. He needed six snookers. He was 58 behind with 35 on, the last red. So that's effectively 24, 23 points. So six snookers he needed. And he got them. Jimmy, it was fair to say, <laughs> I don't think thought he could possibly lose the frame. The first shot he played, Spencer got him in a snooker. And he could. there were various ways he could have played out of it. He, he elected to play the white at pace into the jaws of the yellow pocket and try and sort of skim the cue ball across to hit the red. A sort of showy exhibition shot. And when he failed to hit the red, you kind of knew he was going to come back, come back to bite him. Spencer laid some good snookers and he got a free ball. Um, and anyway, went on to win the, the frame. So it can happen. It is rare, obviously. that I know that's rare. But it can be good, the little cat and mouse battles. And certainly, if, a, if there's a red on, the last red's on, effectively sometimes you only need one snooker technically you need three but if you get that free ball you know it happened in um the uh, english open karen wilson dominic mm. actually dominic dale and dominic left a free ball karen did the rest so i'm i'm just minded to leave it as it is actually i'm minded to leave it as it is i think it's okay it can be dull of course in the in the early days of snook on tv they would simply cut it out you wouldn't see it on the highlights um you know the, you go back to david vine and he'd say you know Stephen and you won that frame onto frame three sort of thing 
So, yeah, I'm minded to uh, leave. I'm sorry to shoot down another email, Donald, but uh, I, I kind of not not a fan really of that. Yeah, um, and like you say, it can be good, but as you also said, it can be very dull watching that. But yeah, I, I don't see any great great reason to change it. Just just to say that John Spencer match against Jimmy White, I mean, that was a huge story that he got to that quarterfinal because he'd had all sorts of problems with his eyes and everything. He looked to spend force and somehow got to that quarterfinal. And the prize money he won, even for all the tournaments he'd won, that was the biggest check of his career, was for getting to that quarterfinal, uh, John Spencer, because the prize money had gone up. Uh, so much in the intervening period. And just as we're talking about that, at the same tournament, the British Open the following year, I definitely have memory of Joe, your colleague in the commentary box, playing on when he needed something like 20 snookers uh, <laughs> against Brian Rousewell. And there were only a few balls left on the table. I've absolutely no idea why he did that. So maybe you can ask him next week. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, uh, Donald mentions Alain Robidoux against Ronnie O'Sullivan, 96 World Championship. It went down to pink and black and probably, I don't know, 60 points in it or something. The problem there, of course, is, well, the big problem is that Robert had been comprehensively outplayed, but Ronnie had been playing left-handed and Robert Dew took took offence at this, took a front at it. The problem, problem there was, obviously, he was never going to win the frame. It was just kind of silly. Um, but Ronnie, when he had chances to pot the pink, didn't pot it. So live on TV for something like 11, 12 minutes, you had this sort of farce of one player playing for snookers that he was never going to get and the other player not putting the frame away. Eventually, the frame ended, the match ended. But, um, yeah, actually, I mean, you know, it's sort of a forgotten controversy, that. But they, they actually became good friends uh, not long after that. Um, so um, they played in a final in Germany, I think, later that year, and uh, all, all was forgotten. Anyway, I think that we've reached an end. Um, people will be pleased to know. I think this is probably the end of our podcasting career, really. Yeah. We've, we've, we've either killed it off or we've found a whole new audience. We'll find out next week which it is. Indeed. Well, if you want to get in contact with anything you've heard or anything else, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Um, not sure what's happening next week. I'm hoping to be at the Northern Ireland Open. Uh, there may be a podcast, there may not. <laughs> That's our promise to you. We'll either be here or we won't. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess all that's left to be said is thanks for listening, and we hopefully will, or you will hear us soon. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.